You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It's my sincere pleasure to introduce Lou Cerny. And on his insistence, we're doing a Q&A today to start uh, the uh, seminar. And then the two of us, he's going to ask me questions. <laughs> no, I have the honor of asking him questions. And we'll do that for about half the time. And then the last half, we'll do our uh, traditional Q&A with the audience. But hey, Lou. Welcome. Thank Welcome. you. Yeah. You have been to several of our classes, which we uh, greatly appreciate. But we've never done this before. Yeah, it's been an honor to have a chance to, to, to come and cover a case study that you, you do very well here um, on entrepreneurship, and uh, I've always enjoyed it. I've been super impressed with the people that, and the questions that, that have come up in these classes. Well, let's get started by just talking a little bit about how you got, you know, not, not how you got here today, <laughs> but, you know, how you got to this place in your life. So you went to, you grew up uh, in Canada? Yep, now right? raised in Toronto. And where'd you go to school? Went to school called Dartmouth College. Yeah. It's an awesome school. Anybody Sorry. know Dartmouth? Somebody's got to do a shout out. And tell yeah. us how, how else, how yeah, your so, path led you to here. So, yeah, I, um, so I, I grew up in a really small town east of Toronto. Um, and I think I was looking for a school that also had a small town feel. So Dartmouth felt right for me. Um, and when I entered Dartmouth in 89 as a freshman, it was one of a very small number of schools that standardized on Max and Everybody had email when they came in. I'm sure Stanford was probably at that stage too. But um, because of the, you know, the ubiquity of Max in, in, in the undergrad uh, population, there's a pretty steady pipeline of undergrads that got recruited out to Apple. So um, I had an opportunity to, to work as an intern at Apple in the summer of 92. Um, and then uh, you know, my first job at Dartmouth was working in the dining hall you know, to, to help pay down the student debt. And, um, it certainly was a much more fun job when Apple sent me back with a bunch of computers to, yeah. to write code for them. So I did that my senior year and then came back, back out here full time when I graduated in 93. Um, so so my, you know, I wasn't you know, founding a company until many years after I got to the, to the Bay Area. Well, so 20 years ago you came this way. Did yeah. you ever think you'd be here today as CEO of New Relic and having started a, another company that was... Sold successfully. I mean, you know, uh, what did you think you'd be twenty years later? Oh, I mean, you have dreams, but then you know, it's you also have um, doubts and, and and all sorts of things. Um, so, no, I don't. I, I certainly, you know, I didn't think I'd, I I belonged as a, a student. I had serious imposter syndrome. So, yeah. Um, so no, I never imagined. So you saw yourself as an engineer, myself. but then how did yeah. you all of a sudden start a company? This is Wiley, and then. Um, yeah, so I know, founded a company called a, Wiley Technology. How did that happen from yeah. being an engineer? So, so I've, I've loved building software um, f- ever since I, I discovered my first computer, and that was in, uh, my, my parents gave me a computer in 82. It had three kilobytes of RAM. Um, so what is that, like one one-thousandth of a single MP3 song? Um, and, um, but I discovered uh, what, you know, what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I mean, the joy of creating software was just something I, I couldn't resist doing. So... Um, it was easy for me to pick a major at Dartmouth, although I also minored in, in Latin and classical studies, and I guess that kind of is part of the story might be that I, I had a broad set of interests, and I wasn't just 
you know, I love the art side of creating software, not just the science side of it. Um, so, so, you know, I couldn't believe that I could get paid to do this, you know, to write code and, and build software. And so it was an easy yes to, to say, to come out here and work for Apple. You know, that's a really significant point because we celebrate that here at Stanford. I think we use the term humanist engineer. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. there is this dichotomy saying, well, you're either an engineer or a humanist and you right. can't be both. Do you no. agree with that? Or no, I think the very best um, engineers really do have an instinct for what people want and empathy for the end user. Um, even if you're just designing something like an API, there's someone who is using that API. Um, and so um, that's why I think liberal arts educations are great for developing the whole set of skills that are mm -hmm. involved in grading, building great software. Um, and of course, you need to learn how to work with people too if you're, if you're working on a team, no matter what your role is. So I'm a big believer in that, big believer in that. All right. Um, so Wiley, so you're so, all of a sudden you're a founder of a company. Yeah, so, so I, um, I had an interest in, in startups and thought I'd love to, to get involved in, in a startup and, and you know, tried many ideas as mental exercises. But um, in, in January of, uh, or sorry, December of 97, an idea hit me um, that I really, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it's a very technical idea, but the idea was um, at that time, Java was this new technology that um, was very early in its uh, adoption. But I, I was a huge fan of Java and thought it could be transformational to how people built software. And today, is Java is by far the number one programming language uh, for modern software. But at that time, it was this, viewed as this toy. And the idea I had was, what if I could make Java software self-diagnostic? What if I could make any Java application report about itself while it runs so that Whoever, whoever built or ran that software could understand how it's performing in production and fix problems in production. So that idea was the genesis of a company that I founded called Wiley Technology in 98. Um, and, uh, and long story short, that was a wonderful learning experience. I had no management experience when I started the company, so I was learning a ton on the job. But it grew to about 350 employees, about uh, 55 million in revenues, and it was acquired in 06. Um, for $375 million by CA. Um, and we, that, that company created a category of software called Application Performance Management. Um, so it was a wonderful experience and a great, you know, uh, a, a great, you know, great outcome for all the stakeholders, but I, I learned a ton along the way. Well, we have a uh, laugh about this on occasion. A Harvard Business School wrote a case about his experience at Wiley, uh, and it's super popular. It's taught a number of business schools. It's taught in all kinds of schools here at Stanford. <laughs> and, and even within here in the engineering school, uh, I suspect that one, many of you will end up doing that case at some point. Because I can think of, besides myself, I can think of two or three other professors who use that as uh, one of the anchor tenets <laughs> of their uh, courses. And so it's, it's always a kick to, to teach it. There's so many angles uh, in the in the case. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, it was about how you've what lessons you've learned about leadership. I mean, to go from being a you know inventor, I mean, yeah. per person who pursues patents, to all of a sudden creating a whole company around it, and what it means to become a CEO of such a thing. Uh, that's a thread. Yeah, the guts of the story was the transition from me as founding CEO to um, it was we decided to to bring on a, a professional who had you know with management experience that could lead the company to the next stage and it really gets into the emotional side of what's it like to to you know give up the CEO role but you're you're still very connected to your company and you want it to succeed and trying to find the right person um, and. Um, 
you know, I learned an enormous amount uh, in that process. Um, and, you know, to jump to a point that I think is worth dwelling yeah. on, like yeah. the difference between now I am serving as CEO of New Relic and we're, uh, New Relic is my second company in many ways. I think of it as um, if I didn't sell Wiley and were to do it all over again, what would I do to try to make a company that could last decades or, or longer um, as an independent company that had a real impact? And that company is New Relic. But the question is, you know, having had two runs at this, one as founder CEO to about 50 employees and one running it through to, to this point at least. Uh, How what, many people is New Relic here? 600. 600. Today? Um, 600 today, uh, up from about 375 in January. It's just mm -hmm. like I'm far beyond the ability to memorize the names and all that stuff. So I'm always like, hey, how's it going? I should know your name, but, but I know you work for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so, so the, I think the biggest change for me personally was my first time around, I really felt compelled as CEO to be uh, more of a domain expert in everything and um, to, in effect, try to be someone I'm not. I, I, I felt like, you know, I had this image of what a CEO should do, how they should spend their time, and how they should behave, and I tried to make myself fit that mold, and I, it, was, it was a terrible mistake. Um, you know, I'm not one to sit in um, quarterly review meetings and, and, um, and, or, or pipeline review meetings or to, um, or to uh, you, know, uh, you know, drill through the financials. Um, I, I, I have a great appreciation for all those things, um, but you know, at the end of the day, I love building products, and I love um, and 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 I love uh, recruiting amazing people to to join me on the journey. And so, this time around, uh, I was very thoughtful about how I spent my time and how I defined my role, and I was very very proactive on recruiting incredibly senior, capable people that could be CEOs of other companies to do the parts of my CEO job that I don't want to do. For example, uh, I. I have a table in my office. It has six chairs around it. If there's a meeting that can't fit around that table, I don't go to it because I'm not one to go to meetings. I'd rather be building software, and, and, or I'd rather be making decisions. In, and I found if I'm in a group meeting with 20 people, I'm either, if I say anything, I'm going to overweight the meeting. And if I, if I, if I don't participate, then I've, I've just got too short an attention span to actually stay engaged in the meeting. So um, I have really smart people that um, run the larger meetings. Um, and, and, but do other parts of like leaving the company that, that you know, I'm not passionate about and not particularly good at. So, so I want to follow this thread, but I yeah. want to give people context. I, I want to explain just how impressive New Relic is. Um, but go to the website. You know, it's, it's fine. Just bring it up and look at the numbers we're talking about. So what do you do? At New we're Relic? a software analytics company. So what does that mean? Um, we collect uh, billions of metrics from live software applications um, to tell the people who build software and run software what it's doing, how it's running, what people are doing to make that software better. So uh, the most profound example of us you know, having an impact was last, uh, late last November when healthcare.gov was having those front page news challenges, just keeping the site running. They had no idea what was going on or why the site was down so often and so slow. Um, New Relic was called in, and within a week, um, the software we provided told um, hundreds of people working on healthcare.gov exactly what they needed to do to fix it. And immediately, the response times went down, the site availability went up, and people could get health insurance. Yeah. Um, but we do that for uh, over 10,000 companies, uh, companies like Airbnb and um, Nike and Disney and 
um, uh, New York Times, and you know, it just spans virtually every vertical. Um, but, uh, but if you think about every, so every business is a software business. Yeah. Um, so, so every business needs to make sure their software works, and that's what we do, is we help them make sure their software delights their customers. Yeah, I saw something on the site, um, getting ready for this, that about data, that it's, I forget the tagline, but it, it ah, forget it now. We're all data nerds. You're data nerds, yeah. They had two meanings to me, not only about data, but also about culture, which we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that we wanted to do at New Relic was celebrate the builders of software. So in my first uh, company at Wiley, um, the, the, the software developers as a constituent um, the conventional wisdom was you don't want to sell to that that crew. They're you know they have you know small budgets and um, not that much influence. But if you think about where the world is going today, the people who build the software are really the people who are changing the world in many ways. Um, and so we want to build a product that army an army of people love and use. And so over 300,000 people have, uh, developers have used our product this year, um, and they're an incredible. Um, if, they're a hard crowd to please. Um, because since they build software for a living, it's kind of like uh, if you're an actor and your entire audience is actors, they can sort of pick all the little things that might be wrong with the software. So, but if you do please them, they're a very um, loyal bunch and they self-reference. So, um, so we celebrate the data nerds, and, uh, and so we've got these data nerd t-shirts we give out for people to try the software and, um, and, 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 a, and a campaign. And, and if you just think about it, data is basically fundamental to every business decision. And, uh, and, and we, the data we collect is from the guts of the software, and that's the, that's, that's the guts of your business. So we think there's a massive opportunity there. So now that you've gotten to know him a little bit, I get to ask him this question. Where did the new name New Relic come from? <laughs> uh, so I, I've, you know, I had a prototype and an idea, and I thought it was time to uh, start you know, put, a, put a company around this, and not knowing whether or not it would become a real company, but I needed to incorporate. So. On short notice, I had to come up with a name, and I didn't have any bright ideas, so I just typed my name, Lou Cerny, in an anagram builder. And uh, you, can, you can Google anagram builders and type your own name in. And, uh, Why don't you do that now? Yeah, yeah. your name of your company someday. I think another, <laughs> I think another anagram of my name is Ren Lice or something like that. <laughs> Ren Lice would be a pretty yeah, good Yeah, that, that's not software. quite got the same No, a new, new relic. So I, I, there, I waited for you to get to know him a little bit before I asked that, because uh, I always get a kick out of that uh, piece of information, is that he's so humble. Uh, he's also audacious. He's really audacious. He want, you want to make New Relic a huge company. Yeah, I mean, there's... I mean, you're not just hoping somebody buys you someday. You're doing this for a whole then other what, thing. Then what would I do? You know, my, my wife would just kick me out again to start another company because I'd drive her crazy. Um, so, no, I... Um, I built one company and sold it, and I have no regrets how that went, but um, because I talked about my role and how I spend my time, I've thoughtfully tried to design my role in my company so that I love my Monday so much and my employees love their Monday so much, there's nothing we'd rather be doing. I think this is one of the problems with a lot of the companies in Silicon Valley. They think, um, look, you can put up with a job you don't like for a few years because it'll all work out in the end when these options might be worth something and then we can start living the life we want to live. I think that's just the wrong way to look at it. I think we should sort of, you know, basically, if you structure your work life so it's, you're doing what you love and you're doing with people you admire and respect and love, then why would you want to do anything else? Yeah. Um, and so this is the last job I ever want to have and I want to be doing it for a lot longer. Um, I love to build software. I still get to do that. I still, I'm doing it with, but I, I you know, I love building... You know, where did this philosophy yeah. come from, though? What, what, where did that motivate? Was that something 
from your parents or was it something you ah. just have developed over your professional life? I mean, uh, it seems I don't so know. simple it's... on one level, but you know. I don't know, it's just, I guess it's common sense that, you know, in life so many times, if all you're doing is chasing the outcome rather than really focusing on, you know, why what you do matters. Yeah. Um, so the outcome might be some financial goal is the only reason it matters. I mean, like, who really gets excited about that? Right. Um, um, and, and by the way, those companies where the only reason why um, people come in and work on a Monday is because there's some pot of gold at the other end and that's the only thing keeping them in the company. Those companies don't weather storms very well, right? And startups will we will have to weather storms. Mm -hmm. um, so, so um, you know, it was just this thoughtful, like, uh, approach of New Relics, you know, currently at a point where it's generated more for, for, for my family than we'll ever um, need. So um, it's not about that. It's about, um, it's about what can we do to, 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 to build a company that, you know, makes hopefully thousands of employees love their Mondays, makes our customers uh, successful with the software they run, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, and just helps me personally begin to continue to, to learn and grow. Yeah, well, let's jump in. Thank you for that. And because it, it sounds simple, but it's, I don't understand why it's not practiced more. Uh, and that's, we uh, live in a place oh, where it's pretty seductive to just look at, you know, the, the shallow things. Uh, you know, the shallow things. I mean, like, it's not that... But you know, just just the easy to describe things like share price, yeah, right. And and just don't let that take your eye off the ball. Like you know, you gotta ask the question: Why does why, why are you doing what you're doing? Well, so having with my wonderful colleagues built out an entrepreneurship and innovation education center in the engineering school, we come from the engineering mindset. So mm -hmm. I think we share that common uh, background. But then it, it isn't just about the money; it's about changing, and in some cases, saving the world. Well, I, yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want us to. Put ourselves on too high a pedestal, but I have been deeply thoughtful about, you know, why does what New Relic do matters? I mean, we make yeah. software a little bit faster, right? So um, it's taken a while to really think deeply on it, but here's my best answer to it. Um, I think the most precious thing we have on this planet is time. The most precious thing we all have is time, and thank you for spending some time in this room. Um, but it, you know, it's possible to make more money. It's not possible to create more time, right. and so people spend. Uh, uh, young people spend up to six hours a day in front of software. So if you think about managing that time, making the most of that time, um, life's too short for bad software. Life's too short for crappy software. And that's why when, when you wait six seconds for that page to load, you know, it seems like the mother of all first world problems. Why are, why are you so frustrated during those six seconds when you know it should take just a couple of but I think it's because during that six seconds when there's nothing you can do but wait, you're just sitting there saying, you're wasting my time and that's my most precious thing, right? And then, but it's not only just is it slow, it's like there's nothing more frustrating to me than like you're on that website, you're about to fill out the form, you type in all the fields, you click submit, and then the next page comes out and says, oh, you didn't fill this one thing, you didn't put dashes in the phone number, and then the whole form is empty, you gotta redo it. The website just wasted your most precious asset, your time, right? So New Relic's mission is to help give people more precious moments in front of their software and hopefully even time away from the software, more time with your family or something like that instead of waiting around for bad software. So that's why what we think we do matters. Well, you know, something comes to matter. That's excellent. And we got some good sound bites out yeah. of that, didn't we? Yeah. I know the editorial team is loving <laughs> that. Um, the mother of all software, or the first, first mother world of all software. first world yeah, problems. I yeah. love that. Uh, let's go to strategy for a minute. Yeah. So, because I've heard you, this has come up in class before when you come by. 
it's not just you celebrate innovation in technology, which I want to talk about, yeah. but also innovation in the business models on the business side yeah. of things. And so New Relic is an instance of that. So, yeah, my last company had to sell. Well, it didn't have to sell, but it, it made sense to sell my last company at um, um, in 06. And I, I thought deeply on why that was. And it really came down to the business model. That was a traditional enterprise software companies, enterprise software companies, license and maintenance enterprise software companies. You can spend nine, 12 months with the customer, and then they sign up for a very large check. Um, that um, and 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 basically, it's very hard to predict when that customer is going to say yes. And 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 usually, after they say yes, it's another 90 days before you actually get a contract out of them. So anyway, that's a really painful business model to to execute to because it's hard to predict what the revenues and it's very expensive to build out that field presence. So. Um, uh, when I started New Relic, I didn't want to be purely dependent on just enterprise business, and I didn't want it to be a licensed business where um, it was very lumpy because it's really, you know, it's hard to sleep at night if you don't know whether or not, especially in the last seven days of the quarter, where like 70% of revenues could come in, and and, uh, and those are paying salaries, right? So I wanted a subscription business. I wanted a business where um, how do you reach the whole market? And the way you do that, um, I think, in business software is you have to build a product that's so simple, so easy to use, that the customer can see the value without the help of a salesperson. Um, and there's a lot of effort that has to go into the design and, um, and thought about the onboarding process that may seem obvious to, to folks in this room because of all the great consumer products you use, but it's actually pretty rare in enterprise software. Um, so... so if you design a product with the business model in line, in mind, it can it really just uh, it can reduce your distribution costs because now you know we give out a, a T-shirt with Data Nerd on it, and somebody tries it out and they fall in love and they want to become a customer. That compresses our sales cycle dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, now we do have an enterprise business as well that does have that traditional sales model, but it's great to have that balanced subscription business of, of of small companies. Um, and that business model was by design, but it started with the product being engineered for the business model. You can't just glue the business model you want to a product that isn't well suited to it. And that's why I think the incumbents are having trouble sort of being, uh, being successful in the SaaS world. The products aren't engineered for, for the kind of business model that I was just describing. You mind if I ask a little bit about operations? One, one would be... <laughs> I'm not a domain expert. You can try. Or, or, or about the, you know, the other side. So you took on venture capital this time. Yeah. Um, given your success with Wiley... Hmm. In the network, you could have stayed with friends and family, or you know, yeah. I, why take on traditional venture capital like, uh, and even make one of them the chairman of your firm, Peter Fenton, uh, yeah. Benchmark. He's well, the chairman of your firm. He is, and uh, I, he's why my do that? he's my best friend. I, I I couldn't respect anyone more as a business partner as a person than Peter. Um, you know, when I started New Relic, I really didn't know if it had the potential to be a company that really made sense for venture funding. I was thinking maybe this is just a little business that aspires to have maybe five million in annual subscriptions and you know maybe um, maybe we have half a dozen employees that all just kind of check email and all mm -hmm. the checks rolled in. That was an interesting concept and Peter completely disillusioned me of that um, by saying no there's there's an opportunity to build a great company. And by the way that idea you have is um, it's not going to be you just sitting in and waiting for the checks to come in. You're going to be carrying the page here and you're going to be having a much harder life than you imagine. So um, Peter's remarkably good at helping people aspire to greatness and do, the, do, their, do their very best, their full potential. And that's, you know, over a glass of very nice wine. He and I uh, talked about building a great company together in, um, in late 07, early 08. Um, and uh, 
Um, for those of you who don't know, I think Peter's routinely in the top, you know, three to four on the Midas list. I think he's just, uh, without question, one of the greatest venture capitalists in in the world. Um, and uh, and why do you say that? When when a venture capitalist is more than just the money, what what is uh, it that he provides? Well, I think one of the things is like he knows how to inspire entrepreneurs to reach higher, and mm. he does it in a way that is all about. You can do this, like you know, it's 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 inspirational is the right word I use. He he um, he'll he'll challenge me, but he'll always support <clears throat> support me as a founder. Um, and my litmus test for working with investors is um, if you're lucky enough to have term sheets from a few investors, um, you know what's more important than the terms are the likelihood that you're going to have a really open and honest relationship and a high trust relationship with that investor. And so. Um, if, if you're looking at a term sheet, what I'd recommend you do is give yourself a gut check and ask, is this individual someone that I feel I could come to very comfortably with bad news? Because you will no doubt have bad, bad days, bad weeks, bad news to share with your investors if you're going through the, uh, the startup ride. Everybody does. So the question is, are you going to feel like hesitant? You're going to like kind of shape the message to make sure that you know, they don't overreact or whatever. Are they going to get too... Um, to, to, to just difficult to work with, or are they going to be collaborative and help you solve whatever problem needs to be solved? That gut check, Peter, like you know, resonates very well with that, and I'm also blessed to have like Dan Skolnick is another great board member on my the team. I mean, I've just got great investors, but they almost feel like co-founders. I mean, given that you were a solo founder, yeah. which is unusual. Uh, well, they certainly in the data. You know, they, they almost become you say he's the best friend that almost sounds like a co-founder uh, they feel like you know deep partners that um you know i can be completely open and vulnerable with so yeah. and the interesting thing about it is um i feel like it works better for their relationship with me too because I, I i you know you can people are smart they know when they're being played or managed or like you know someone's trying to represent themselves as being someone they're not um and there's temptation to do that when you feel like you've, I don't know, you're, you're def- you, you, you got to defend yourself or you don't have that level of trust with a person. But when you're completely open and vulnerable, vulnerable with your investors, they draw themselves in and really want to help you too and help you grow and your company succeed. So it's, it has this kind of symbiotic relationship. And I'd say the same thing with how, with how you work with your senior team as well. Well, that caught me on my eye. I've got a couple of things, and then we'll open up the uh, general Q&A. The other one is that you are known, at least on Wikipedia, <laughs> Source of all and we all know, yeah, exactly. As the coding CEO, that's yeah. like a cartoon character. Yeah, the coding coding CEO who still finds time to actively actively involved. I mean, there was one post by someone uh, that said you code on Thursdays and Fridays. Well, do you um, still do that. So let me tell you the story about behind this. So I um, I remember I had a meeting with Peter Fenton, um, spring of. 12 or so, and I was like, he's on the board of Twitter. I'm like, how on earth does Jack Dorsey, at the time he was very active with both Twitter and Twitter, yeah. running both. And I said, how does he manage his time? And he said, and he gave me some guidance. And so it starts with just thinking deeply, what, what do you love to do that you think can really move the needle for your company? Um, and then after you allocate your time accordingly to, to line up with how can you be most effective with your time allocation, um, then make sure you've got the team to complement where you're not focusing your time. But anyway, um, for me, I, I love building software and I love creating stuff. And I wouldn't want it to be interpreted that like, uh, you know, the only, the, the only new ideas come from me or anything like that. We've got amazing engineers that are capable of building amazing software. But 
I'm less grumpy when I'm writing code. You know, my, my wife always says when I come back from a coding retreat, I'm a little happier, a little more, sometimes a little zoned out because I'm just so deep in the zone of whatever I'm trying to create. But, but it does bring me back to the strategic discussions, I think, with a different perspective. I'm a little bit more, um, I, don't, I don't get as mired in the details and things mm -hmm. like that. So, so anyway, how I allocate the time is I try uh, four to six times a year to have a full uninterrupted week of code. Um, I do it in a remote place. Sometimes I have to explain to my poor daughter, Caitlin, over here that daddy's going to somewhere like Cabo San Lucas and I bring a laptop and a screen and I write code for a week and I come back with a prototype and, uh, and the poor engineers need to somehow take that and figure out how to make a product out of it. Hey, goofball. Um, so anyway, uh, and I try to do that four to six times a year. And the thing about it is, um, why, do, why, why do I do this? Well, my rationale for it is, most software companies go through this arc where the, the original idea the company was founded on has a high growth curve, the company brings in mature management, and they kind of get good at distributing and selling and growing the top line. And you build this engine that gets really good at that. But it's very hard for the company to come up with a second act, a new fundamental idea that's totally, totally new and disruptive um, that, that goes beyond the first idea. In fact, I don't think there's more than five companies that have really done it well. Uh, you know, Apple obviously did it very well. Microsoft did it well, going from the OS to applications back in the 90s. Um, Oracle, you could argue, did it when they went from the database to, um, to apps. Um, now, what all those companies have in common is uh, led by founder, um, very product focused. Um, and the founder was so obsessed on product that, like, you know, you asked, you, so, so I, I created the next uh, product uh, in. January of uh, 12, in my cabin in Tahoe, um, and uh, I'm very obsessed on it, um, and, and so that's, that's our, our next act, and we think it's 10 times bigger than our current act, so um, I'm not saying it's going to happen net, like 100%, but I believe it will, and, and, and more importantly, I believe that we want to create the culture where we're never just kind of satisfied with what we've created in the past. Um, uh, we care about all. I, we just don't want to be, uh, you know, a Nokia. Are you um, a nerd? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, well, because I ask, because if you go to the site and you see that in the, in this part of the site that talks about the company culture, you know, yeah. the, the the atmosphere and the, and the philosophies of what it's like to work at New Relic. At, there's a celebration of the nerd. I think you mentioned it. That we're yeah. dad and nerds. Yeah. So it it reflects you. I mean, I a think bit, but I, yeah. Yeah, there is, like, you know, a, we, we, we certainly love, um, you know, we love creating software, we love, uh, we, and we love, um, you know, people who use, who really just do incredible things with their minds, yeah. right? Um, and, um, but I'd say the other thing that's kind of important about our culture is this focus on, um, there's a warmth to the culture of our company. Um, you know, I, I hear this every time people kind of visit the company, like, you know, just how they get treated by no matter who they bump into when they come across. And I think that's um, the thing I want the culture most to be known for is like um, people love working at New Relic or, or interacting with New Relic because the people are sincere. Um, and, uh, um, and I just, as we grow, I feel like that's going to be important to preserve and, and make sure the culture is a place where, you know, there's, there's a warmth and honesty and integrity to the company. Wow, thank you. I think that's a good way or a good point to segue to questions from the audience. Let's do this for a little bit. What did we not cover that you'd like to hear something about or to amplify something uh, perhaps that we did right here? So in your experience, um, 
can you share the benefits and drawbacks of being a founder versus a co-founder? Can you repeat the yeah. question? Yeah, so the question was, can I share the, the benefits or contrast being a founder versus a co-founder? Well, I, I, I've been sole founder of both my companies. Um, and it, in some ways, it's harder. In some ways, it's easier, obviously. I mean, it's, um, when, when you're sole founder, it's very lonely. Um, in my first company, I was in a little one-bedroom apartment in Santa Cruz. But fortunately, it was like, you know, when I really got just overwhelmed, I'd walk out and stare at the ocean and recognize how much more there was to the world than whatever I was worried about. Um, but um, the sole founder thing, um, the reason why I'm a sole founder, I think, is um, I always draw these analogies with between creating software companies and creating music. Um, and the reason why I run off to go code is kind of like a musician that just you know feels like they've got one more album in them, right? And so I'm like a singer-songwriter. I, I I I write the music and I perform it, right? Um, and there are better virtuoso musicians that can play the piano better than I might be able to play, right? Or as as like pure engineers that really um, you know are up to speed on algorithms or something. Um, uh, but but. But because I'm writing the stuff that I'm conceiving of, um, and I'm doing that kind of in that in that kind of very isolated early stage, um, I think there's just something in the product that is harder to get. Now, the other analogy is Lennon and McCartney, <laughs> right? So, so there are these duos that create incredible products, um, and and I and and I have a partner. My CTO is somebody that I go to every time I have an idea, and he's my bounce, you know, my my soundboard, and the person that, um, um, you know, he's very good at, at at telling me no and and doing it in a way that makes me feel like, boy, is he ever right? Um, and uh, um, so, so I, I do have that, but I, I just like that at the very beginning, just kind of be a, um, just like you know, writing a novel alone, the hermit in the woods kind of thing, without without um, going crazy, hopefully. So. A question in the very back. Uh, yeah, thank you. So, uh, one of the other speakers in the series, uh, Tala, uh presented to us that uh, he thought there should be a National Entrepreneur's Day, especially Engineering Entrepreneur's Day, because the tinkerers that add value this way, um, at, you know, they add tremendous value to society, but they also take great risks and frequently fail. <clears throat> so, I wonder if you can talk about how the innovation and the risk associated with those innovations in your firm dovetails with a society that can be kind of hard on failure, how that works inside your uh, your community uh, at New Relic, and how it works between New Relic and other firms. Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I feel like, um, yeah, as a society, um, we you know, can't help but probably put too much emphasis on the folks that happen to be fortunate enough to have success. Um, and it's the same, like, but you look at that any, like, you know, um, think about how many people are playing minor league ball that never, you know, had their one at bat in the majors or whatever, right? You, you can look in almost any domain and just sort of see that, and that's kind of kind of natural. Um, I, I, if, if there is any celebrating going on um, for, for entrepreneurship or anything like that, it should be for... Um, I think the joy of creating stuff. I'm a huge fan, by the way, of Code.org and just getting you know, Hardy Partovi's project to get, um, I think they're on their way to 100 million people learning how to code. And in particular, getting... Explain who they are. Just so so, so Code.org is this remarkable project that, that um, anybody can learn how to code in an hour. 
Um, and in particular, and I think this is really important, getting more girls excited about coding at a young age. There's not enough women in, in software, and, and I really think that that ought to, that ought to change. And the, and, the, and the best way I know how to do it is to get girls at a young age to do it. Um, and so um, I remember Christmas of last year, um, my daughter and her three friends um, were um, at my cabin in Tahoe. It was three days after Christmas. There's a room full of presents. And there's four girls fighting over three computers because they all want to learn how to code on code.org. And that was the coolest thing ever. So um, you know, encourage young girls, well, young people, or any, anybody to, to go to code.org and just learn, learn a bit more of that. And that's what I'd like to celebrate. Yeah. Good. There's somebody in the middle here. Did you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was curious uh, if you could talk a little bit about long-term strategy in this mobile enterprise space. And then like, a sub-question related to that. Looking at your product, I was curious um, whether you were going to go by way of like a marketplace, kind of like Salesforce, where people can integrate into your product, or have people learn the new query language? Oh, very can, good question. Can you restate that just in case? Yeah, I, I hope I'm going to answer the question the way you, what you're looking for, but you're, you're asking about our long-term business strategy. Um, in particular about how, um, you know, are we going to have people build applications on top of our, our big data database technology or is there going to be a marketplace or something like that and how does mobile fit into it? So let me spend a little bit of time on this thing that I created in the Tahoe cabin a year ago. Two and a half, nearly two years ago now I started it. Um, it totally don't invent, you know, not invented here. I, I reinvented the wheel but I created a big data database from scratch and, um, but I wanted to do something that was high performance tuned for real-time analytics. Um, and, and existing uh, database technologies were a little too generic, and so um, they couldn't w do it a billion event query in, in under a second on any attribute. Um, um, so so that's, what, that's what we built. And, and the power of this is that since we're collecting all this data from software in real-time, we can answer questions like, how many people under 15 are looking at a, an item right now that, that signed up last week? All those kind of business questions that you want to know about what's going on in your software. And, our, and, and the cool thing is we've got this cloud database that um, you don't need to do anything. Just shove the data in. You don't need to worry about indexing or configuring anything like that. The point is this is a very powerful technology about, upon which is, we're in the, like, not even the first inning of. We're, we're, you know, we've got this $40 billion big data analytics opportunity, and we've got a really differentiated technology. My vision is at the moment, and I'm working on it, but my best, I think our best path forward is to make a platform out of that where our customers can build applications on it um, in the cloud. So if you want to build an application for your support organization to help support reps um, understand what the end customer's experience is for a specific user, um, you can build that app on top of the New Relic data application platform. You can do it for salespeople, for marketing people inside your org. My ultimate vision is I want every knowledge worker to be a New Relic data nerd using our analytics products. To, so going beyond just the software developers and the people who build software to everybody who has a, um, some, 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 something to contribute um, as a knowledge worker um, using the big data analytics that New Relic provides. Right here. Um, so most recently, you raised a lot of money from private equity. Why did you do that instead of like the typical route, which is VC and IPO? Right. So the question was, we recently raised a large round, and it was uh, private equity. Actually, the, the investors in that round are large institutional funds that typically invest in public companies. So um, Fidelity and 
um, T. Rowe Price and uh, BlackRock. These are these are folks that typically invest in, in public companies. And what we found is, or what they've been seeing is, um, um, for certain occasions, uh, rarely they'll they'll go into some private companies that they see have you know potential to be big important companies, and they'll kind of break their rule about being only public investors. Um, and uh, and, and New Relic has aspirations to be an independent company for the long term. And so what we want to do was have an investor base that feel like they're just at the beginning of their journey with New Relic, unlike, um, and I, you know, I believe my venture investors, when they say they're, they're long New Relic too, but venture funds are structured so that you know, they're, they're, they're in private companies. So, so we wanted to bring in people who think of New Relic as you know, this very early stage company that they want to participate in for a very long period of time. And, and so we, we, we went out to you know, the, the top tier public market investors, and we were lucky enough to put together a good round. So that was a $100 million round we closed last, uh, last spring, and our aspiration is to be a public company, and, uh, but that's just a step along the journey. Right here. Um, would it be possible to um, get into the early days of, your, of the founding of your first, um, first, first company? How did you get going? How did you get the capital or the sure. resources? So the question is, how, tell me about the early days of my first company. That company also, was, it's talked a good bit about in this book by oh. our friend Professor Wasserman at Harvard. Yeah. But you know, give us the uh, headlines. Yeah, the early day of, days of Wiley, as I said, I was an engineer. I hadn't desired to start a company. And I, I, and I was a Java developer, and I was stuck with this problem of my Java software worked in my local environment, when every time I ran it in a remote environment, it was broken, and I didn't know why. And so I'm driving down Highway 17 to my little apartment in Santa Cruz, and I'm thinking, thinking, how do I solve this problem for myself? And this idea of, this, of something called bytecode instrumentation, a way to modify the Java program without the person who built the software needing to do anything. Another program could make that, that software self-diagnostic. And I was so excited about that idea, being the nerd that I am, that I almost drove off the road on 17. That would have been an early end to, you know, there would be no ETL in 2014. So anyway. Uh, by the time I made it to Santa Cruz, I said, I, I, I want to start a company. Problem was, I, had, I was not from a family of means. I had no money. But I was only 28 years old, and so, I mean, there wasn't much to lose. So I called up my parents, and, and they didn't have any capital to invest, but they had seven friends who um, each were willing to put $5,000 in. So within about a week, I had 35000 of committed capital. Well, that was infinite funds as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I could live forever on it. So... So um, I said, of course I'll quit my day job. What's the downside? There's none. So I, I, I started Wiley. I worked on it. I remember Christmas Day, my parents ripping me away from the computer because I just about got the prototype working there. Come on, it's Christmas dinner, Lou. And so I said, all right, if, it's, if this progress bar makes it across the end, then it works. And, and so that's, where, that's how it got started. And uh, it turned into $100,000 of first funding from you know, people like the headmaster of my high school and other sort of, you know. Um, they all made out really well, by the way. Um, so, um, but uh, yeah, I didn't hire my first employee for a full year. Nobody would fund me because, I mean, first of all, this was 98, so I wasn't doing shoelaces.com or anything that was like public internet. And like anything public internet could fund it, but something like, I've got Java bytecode instrumentation technology and no capability to talk about that as a business. Nobody wanted to fund that. Um, so, but that was good because um, the bubble burst in 2000, and I hadn't raised much money, um, so we didn't have a burn rate or anything like that. And, and we kind of 
just got into our stride and raised our first significant round uh, in 2000, and, and, and then we were well positioned to actually build a business. Look, I'm watching the clock because I know uh, we're. Oh, I got a flight to catch. Yeah, you a flight to catch. Yeah, in. but we got one or two Wait, more questions. How about one more over here? Yeah. I wanted to ask more about the culture and hiring. You talked about like warmth and kindness, and you talked about like not wanting like uh, people who only care about like the pot of gold at the end yeah. and things like that. How did you? Uh, how did you make that culture, and how did you balance that with wanting to hire strong, uh, like being competitive? In yeah. Uh, the question was about the culture and building a warm culture. How do you go about building that? And of course, you, you want to build a competitive company and you want to win in your marketplace. And certainly those, those are important things to New Relic as well. I think it's the same life skills. I mean, like, it's just how do you choose your friends, right? I mean, how do you, you get to know people and you're like, do I want to spend time with them? I, we, we talk about like one litmus test is could you imagine hopping in a car with this person driving to L.A.? Would you enjoy that road trip or would you be like, get me out of the car, right? So... Um, I was fortunate enough early on in, my, in both my companies to hire people I had deep respect with. I thought they were gifted, but they, I thought they brought out the best in me. Um, and, but I wanted to spend time with them. So, you know, you never want kind of a marriage of convenience where it's like, you've got skills I need. I've got, you know, a company that could help make you wealthy. Let's, like, work together. I mean, like, if that's how you're making it happen, then don't do it, right? Work with people that's going to bring out the best in you. There are going to be dark days. There are going to be challenging days. You want people that you're, like, you're in it with together. Um, and, uh, and then you just keep investing them. The other thing I would say that I don't think people do enough of is they think of recruiting as, all right, get someone to say yes, get them to join your company, then focus your recruiting time on the next person. Keep recruiting your people after they come in. What I mean by that is check in on them three months after they've joined. Is the company, like, you know, are you loving your job? Are you loving your Mondays? Is this turning out the way you hoped? Is it better than you hoped? What, what, what is about it that, that you like? You know, what can we do to make, keep the company special for people, right? So you want people to feel valued, right? Everybody wants to feel valued, no matter what you do. If you're a support rep, if you're in finance, if you're in marketing, you want to feel like what you do matters. And if you feel like what you do matters, then it turns out you're pretty nice to other people, all right? So it's, it's all kind of this, it's all intertwined. Please join me in thanking Lou. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.